Welcome to our second episode of EIU Panthers podcast. I'm your host, Rich Moser, and on this week's program, we are joined by former longtime cross-country coach and Eastern Illinois instructor, Dr. Tom Woodall. Dr. Woodall was an assistant coach on a pair of national championship cross-country teams at EIU in the late 1960s, and then served as the head coach for the Panthers' 1977 NCAA National Championship cross-country team. In addition, he was an assistant coach for the Panthers' 1974 NCAA National Championship track and field squad. An avid supporter of the sport, a fitness expert, and a longtime communicator with alumni from Eastern Illinois, we cover a variety of topics with Coach Woodall in today's EIU Panthers podcast. Before we join Coach Woodall, a couple of quick notes on EIU Panther athletics. We would like to thank this week's Panther Sports Properties Corporate Partner of the Week, Porter Auto Body, and the restaurant of the week, your Central Illinois McDonald's restaurants. Porter Auto Body is your home for collision repair for your automobile. Need to have it look like new? Then visit your Porter Auto Body dealers located in Charleston and Mattoon. Your Central Illinois McDonald's restaurants are proud to support Eastern Illinois athletics. Be sure to stop by your local McDonald's, now offering mobile order and pay, curbside pickup, delivery, and drive-through. In other Eastern Illinois news, be sure to check out our website at eiupanthers.com, where this week the Ohio Valley Conference released its list of academic awards for the 2019-20 academic year. EIU led the OVC and Commissioner's Honor Roll Award winners and had 33 student athletes earn the OVC Academic Medal of Honor. Also this Friday, August 7th, we will have a feature on current EIU cross-country runner, Dustin Hatfield. All that and much more. For the latest news on EIU athletics, visit EIUPanthers.com. Once again, thank you for listening to EIU Panthers podcast as we now present our conversation with this week's guest, former EIU cross-country coach, Dr. Tom Woodall. And welcome to another edition of EIU Panthers podcast. We're joined today by long time, we'll say retired now, but long time uh, former EIU cross country and track coach, Tom Woodall, Dr. Tom Woodall. I, I, I throw the doctor in there. I know I know you spent a lot of time in getting those degrees, coach. So I know that that's very important to make sure I throw the doctor part in there. Well, I'm glad that you uh, called and I don't know what you're going to ask me to do, but I'll try it. Well, we, we had a little bit of fun with these. We're, we're, you'll be one of my, my second or third that, that I've done of these. This is something new that we're just trying to launch to um, get the message of EIU athletics out there a little bit more. We had uh, one of your longtime friends, Coach Shellis Hyman, was our, our guest earlier, and he told me, he said he was glad that he got to go before you because he knows you know all the stories, and so that way he could at least get a few in. <laughs> I got some on him, but I won't tell him. Yeah, he didn't tell any stories about you. He just said you knew a lot of stories. So that was, from that standpoint, that was good. But just wanted to um, catch up with you a little bit here, you know, and kind of reminisce a little bit with you as well. One of the things that that we talked with Coach Hyman about, and and I know you were a big part of this, is last, I guess, October now, and time flies by with the, or maybe doesn't fly by, depending on where you're at with the, the COVID right now, and we were able to celebrate the 1969 national championship team for not only men's soccer, which coach Hyman was a member of, but also for the cross country team, which you were an integral part of. And I know you were, you were a big part of putting those together. So I do thank you for, for your, for your help on putting those. And I wanted to kind of maybe get your thoughts on, on, 
on what those guys' reactions was for coming back. And some of them, it was maybe their first time on campus, maybe in 50 years. Well, it was really, uh, it was very successful. I didn't know what would happen. Shellis provided me with the names and emails of the soccer players. And we contacted them. And, and of course, uh, you got to remember, these guys, all of them are over 70 years of age now. So some of them are no more longer living or we couldn't track them. But the cross-country guys, I think we had about eight of them and about 17 soccer players. And they returned, and it was a beautiful experience. They, they shared locker rooms when they were athletes here. And so they all remembered the stories and the jokes and the pranks that they did. But they were very, very respectful. Our, uh, our kids would always come to the soccer games at home and watch them. And when we would be running at home, the soccer team would be out there cheering for us. So it was kind of like a homecoming 50 years later. And uh, so, yeah, it was, a, it was a very nice event. We, it was interesting. We were invited to be introduced to the homecoming football crowd. As you recall, it poured rain. And so all the, all the players, it's kind of funny, they're 70 years old. They're all excited to go out on the field to be introduced, and they did. And there was nobody in the stands other than the band. And so it was kind of funny. They're waving to everybody, but there was nobody there. Uh, but it was a very meaningful time. And so many emails afterwards came from uh, team members from both saying how much they enjoyed it. So, yeah, it was a great time. Well, I enjoyed having them back and especially enjoyed – hearing the stories that they all had on Friday night. And I know 50 years later, maybe some of those stories get a little bit bigger and a little bit greater as, as they go. But I, I do appreciate them really sticking with it. And like you mentioned, I think we may have had the hardest rain I've ever seen at, a, at an athletic event. I mean, there, there was standing water on the turf field at football, which I had never seen. And right. I felt bad for those guys. They were in the homecoming parade before. And so coming to the game wasn't the only time they had been out in the rain that day. That's right. Yeah, we went around, uh, we had a float, and at first we had these bales of hay for them to sit on, but who wanted to sit on a wet bale of hay? But they all did, got some umbrellas, we went around on the three-mile uh, uh, float-like uh, e equipment, and there was a ha handful of people here and there braving the, the water, but they really seemed to have a good time when we finished. That might have been the high spot of the whole thing, was just riding on a wet, soaking, homecoming <laughs> float. Yeah, it was good. Now, for you, you, you have the privilege. You may be one of the few people at this university with four national championship rings. And I, and I say that you've got three in, from cross country, then the 68 and 69. They were back-to-back -back NAIA champions. We, we, we just talked briefly about the 69 team. You were an assistant coach, if I'm not mistaken, on both those teams. And then the 74 track team won the national championship. And then you come back as the – the head coach of the 77 cross country team and won a championship again, I guess, take us through maybe the, the thoughts from winning that first one that you were part of in 1968 to 10 years later, you, you win another one, maybe, maybe the different thoughts on, on each one of them, if one of them comes to mind, or maybe one of them's a little bit more highlighted than the others. Uh, I think the 1968 was interesting because Pat O'Brien, who was the head coach was very heavily involved in the Olympic games. So he wasn't with us for four to five weeks. He was at the Olympic Games, and so uh, I had the team, and no problem with that. And we went up to Wheaton for the competition, and when it finished, we ended up second. The University of Nevada was given the uh, championship in 1968. That was in November, but in December, I got a box in the mail and a letter from the NCAA saying uh, Nevada was declared ineligible because they had 
three or four guys on their team who were from Ireland and Spain, and they highly recruited around the world. And they weren't even in school. They were running in the Olympic Games. So the NCAA took the trophy away from them and the medals, sent them to us. And I can remember taking them to our team meeting. And it was like getting a kiss from your sister. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it wasn't exciting to, to get the thing uh, a month later. But it, none of them threw them away. You can bet that. And the trophy is still in our case. But the next year, 1969, we had almost everybody back. And uh, it's kind of funny. It was, the jaws were set. We're going to do this for real this time. And there was no backing into it. And uh, they ran very well. Uh, this 1977 team was an extremely good team. I didn't realize how good they were till years later. Uh, we, we went up and well, we won the Notre Dame Invitational, beating all the Division I type schools. And uh, so I knew we had a, a good shot to do well. The interesting thing about it was uh, the fact that it snowed and was about 20 degrees in the day of the race. And uh, so one of our runners, Duncan McHugh, had been working on a uh, semi uh, on a moving van all summer. So he would ride to California, unload his load, and then come back and unload his load. And when he came to school, he said, you know, I got hardly any running done last summer like I was supposed to. And so September and October, he, he just had to work his way back into the team. But when we left the hotel to go to the race, I remember him looking me in the eye and he said, you know, there's nothing you can't do if you love each other enough. And that's the background of that team. Uh, they cared, they were unselfish, and we ended up winning this uh, NCAA tournament or uh, race with the lowest score in NCAA history. Six All-Americans, uh, and it, it was a, a time that they would never forget. And so uh, those, were the, those weren't the only races that we remember, but those are the ones that people know about. Very good. And then I know on the, the track's a little bit different in the fact that you sometimes become a specialty coach, but I know in 74, unique in that Eastern not only won the national championship, but actually hosted that national championship meet here at O'Brien. And I, and I think I've, I've heard a, a couple of the, the former athletes and yourself maybe talk about how that championship was one that you needed to score X amount of points maybe in the final race. And I think it was maybe the the four by four is usually the final race in a track meet. Yeah. I don't remember the exact numbers, but we came down and knew that the final, the last race would determine who would win. And of course we had rain delays uh, during the day. They had to, you know, adjust the schedule. They ran the high jump inside on the indoor track. So it was kind of a messed up thing, but the sun came out and they uh, ran that final relay. And when they added up all the points, uh, Eastern was there right on top. So, it was a, a meaningful. I got to tell you a quick side story. I, I was announcing that meet. It was a, a national meet, and we had a fair crowd. And I got on the walkie-talkie. One of the people said, uh, why don't you announce that they opened the gate in the southeast portion of the stadium so that Dr. O'Brien could get in? He was at an electric uh, golf cart that he was riding around in. And uh, I happened to look out there, and I saw that there was a security officer standing right next to the gate. And he happened to be smoking a cigarette. <laughs> so uh, I thought I was talking back into the uh, walkie-talkie, but I was talking over the loudspeaker. And I said, why don't you get that cop over there who's smoking a cigarette to open the gate for you? And, of course, that came out through the whole entire stadium. <laughs> well, a few weeks later, I was in a position where I had to call security. 
and reserve some uh, parking spaces for people. And I ended up getting hold of the guy who I had uh, said something about, that, why don't you get the guy uh, to open the gate who's already there? So we had kind of a running feud back and forth uh, on the phone. But yeah, that was that was really quite a quite a meet. In fact, just a few days ago, I got an email from a, the guy that got second in that high jump. I hadn't heard of him in 46 years. And he sent me a picture of himself standing on the podium. And his points, of course, were, were crucial in us winning that title. Now you talk about that. You, you're kind of one of the, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to have you as one of our early guests when we do on these EIU Panther podcasts is the kind of your, your maybe a resident historian in terms of some of the sports and 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 in particular, you know, the the running sports, the track sports, and and some of that that crossed over, and the fact that I, I believe you do this every week, and I don't know how long you've you've done it for. Less pro at least probably since they've had email. Maybe you did a one before then, but you do a, like a weekly newsletter and kind of update people what's going on in their lives. And I think I, I'm on that list. And, and it's always interesting to see some of the connections that people have. And, and maybe what are some of the more interesting stories that, that, that you've had come out of some of those interactions? I'm guessing getting a, a photo from a guy 47 years later has got to be up there near the top. Yeah. Actually, I don't do it every week. I couldn't do that, but I do it every month, and I've done okay. it for 20 years. And uh, what happens now, it's fun because people, I send this out to about 600 former Eastern students, athletes, faculty, interested people. And so what happens is they now know about it, so they send me pictures of their kids or their new job or something. So it's allowed me to really stay in touch, and they stay in touch uh, through each other. So it's a... It's, uh, uh, you know, I didn't start it way back. If I had started way back in 1965 when I came here, I would have been able to include stuff about how we started the Panther Pant Foot Race. And we had a couple hundred people coming in, the best Midwest runners. This, this wasn't a 12-mile race for uh, old people that wanted to see if they could make it. These were Olympic-type runners. Uh, we went from the Panther Pant, then we started the adult uh, the Run for Your Life program. You might have heard that. That's a long time ago. We had that for several years. I th I'd, I'd like to tell you an interesting story about that. Doyle Johnson was a country company's insurance man. And uh, we'd, we had up to 200 men. Women were not interested in jogging in the very early 70s. That changed, but we just had men. And we said, anybody who could jog 1,000 miles in one year on the honor system would get this trophy. Well, country company's insurance prepared a beautiful trophy. I think it cost about 35 bucks a piece in those days. You know what it would be worth today. In the very first year we did it, uh, uh, we had 71 guys. And so uh, when we when we uh, told Doyle that we needed 71 of those trophies, next year he said, do you suppose next year we could just kind of take their picture because it cost <laughs> country companies about $2,500. Uh, but it was interesting. These were, these were men who had never been in sports at all. They weren't former basketball players or anything else. These were guys that were just out of shape. Most of them just uh, community residents, of course. And some of them got to walking and jogging, working very seriously uh, through a, a series of progressions we had for them. And before you know it, some of them running 5K, 10K races. I think we had 20 of them that ended up running full marathons. Not that that was the goal, but that was the outcome for some. So th those early years, uh, the Panther Pant, the Run for Your Life, and of course then Run for Your Life turned into the adult fitness program. 
and that's still going on. Uh, have over 200 people in the community and faculty that are, they, they get to be screened with the EKG and Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they come over to Eastern facilities. They have grad students who are eager to work with them. And those same grad students now are going out around the country, uh, working in hospitals and clinics and cardiac rehab. So those are some of the people who get that, that newsletter. So it's, it's really quite a diverse, diverse thing. And it, I think it kind of helps hold us together. I'm, I don't think I'm answering your question at all, but- No, no, no. Just great. One other th I would mention one other thing that's crucial. Uh, we used to have a little run for the Run for Your Life. It's called Abe's Amble. And maybe you or some of the other people that are listening recall when they brought about a 60-foot statue of Abe Lincoln. It was plastic, and they didn't know what to do with it. And people in town saying, oh, that's ugly. And they were trying to move it around. It's still in existence someplace. But we would run from the fairgrounds out to this statue. And I just called it uh, Abe's Amble. I think we did it on the 4th of July. Well, about 10 years later, I get a phone call from the people in Springfield at the state fair. And they said, we want to run a 10K race and we want to call it Abe's Amble. Would that be okay? And I said, I don't have any copyright on it. Go ahead. So my wife and I went up one year to run in the 10K Abe's Amble. And it was a very hot day. And she and I, she's not a competitive runner. And we just walked and jogged and walked and jogged. And suddenly there was this man past us. We were way at the back of the pack and they didn't have any, uh, any medical, uh, you know, they weren't prepared for an emergency, no ambulance or anything. And suddenly this man dropped down to the uh, uh, pavement and I ran up to him and I saw his fingernails getting blue and his lips getting blue. And I knew what was happening. He was having a heart attack right there. And so my wife tried to flag down any car she could. Uh, she found a car, we got him in the back seat. You can't do CPR in the back seat of a car, but we got him to St. John's. They kept him in the emergency room for 30 minutes and he died. Oh, wow. And, uh, you know, talk about a sobering time. And I had a guilt trip for months about that I didn't do good enough CPR. Uh, and about four, about eight months later, I get something in the mail about from the ACLS, uh, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. It's an organization that basically works with physicians and emergency room nurses about procedures. And I got an inv invitation to go to the event in Lincoln, Illinois. So I did. I didn't know it was going to be an exam. I just thought it was teaching. Well, by the end of the week, they said they were going to have the exam for certification. And I thought, well, I've already, <laughs> I was up 24 hours a night trying to get people to help me understand because I'd never read EKGs before. Uh, anyway, Somehow I passed the thing and I came back and I said to myself, we are going to have cardiac rehab in Charleston, Mattoon. As it turned out with the cooperation of Dr. Huffman, some other physician, took two years, a lot of infighting with the politics of the hospital, but it finally got established. Uh, Sharon Jackson was one of our students in, in the early 80s. She is still a director of that program 35 years later. And uh, if you want to do a survey sometime with people in the community that appreciate that outreach, they have a couple hundred people coming Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or lesser times at the hospital or diabetics, obese, uh, all kinds of reasons. So uh, it's a, a weird experience how that happened, but uh, I think the good Lord arranged it so we would have cardiac rehab in this area. Now we're going to hit some of your, your, your other hobbies there, Coach. I know running is your passion and it's something you're, you're you're truly involved in, but I think another, people that know you will know this, people that are listening that do not know you may be a little surprised, but you're in a barbershop quartet, and I don't know if it's grown from a quartet and it's, or it's shrunk from, from a quartet, but 
I guess kind of what 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 got you interested in in doing that, and how long have you been doing those types of things? Well, bef long before I came to Eastern, 1959, I, I was teaching in Milledgeville, Illinois, Northern Illinois, and I joined a barbershop chapter. It was a group of 25 or 30 guys. They met in Sterling. I was with them a couple of years, and then I went on to get my doctorate at the University of Iowa. Uh, but I always loved the barbershop singing. My first teaching job was out at South Dakota State University. I was teaching and coaching there. So I started a little barbershop chapter in my basement. We had a little folding chairs and my wife would get some refreshments and we had 10 or 12 guys that liked to sing. When I came to Eastern in 1965, I thought, boy, I'd, I'd like to get a little group going if we could. I went next door to Ron Leathers. Some of the people know that name. He was an English teacher. And I said, do you sing? He said, well, not, I never really done a whole lot of it. And I said, good, you're the bass. Now we've got to find two other guys. And we found Larry Williams, who was a math professor, and Sam Tabor, who was head of registration. We got a little quartet. We called ourselves the Facultones. <laughs> uh, we were singing in and around just for the fun of it. But the idea was, if we could get the word out and get enough guys, we would have a chapter. So we would have a barbershop course. And that's what happened. And we are still in, in effect practice on Tuesday nights. We have been going together for 52 years. We have some 30 guys, not all the same ones are still singing. Many have passed away, but we have three or four quartets that are active in that group. In fact, I think we've sung the national anthem before a couple of basketball games at home. And uh, it's a community outreach where we sing in churches, nursing homes, and uh, do some uh, benefit singing for the food pantries. And so I feel good about the, uh, the purpose of it and the fellowship, uh, it's, a, it's a very special thing to me. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite song that you like to sing as part of the quartet? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. It's, it's interesting. If you analyze what people used to, barbershop became really popular in the early 1920s. And about every other song was written about girls and love and romance and all that. So invariably, when you start going through the list, you can hardly avoid some of the songs like Wait Till the Sun Shines Nelly or my Wild Irish Rose, uh, these sorts of things. So they're all good songs if they're well arranged and, and you practice them enough to learn how to sing them. Now, the other, when I know you've coached for a long time and coach, and I just ask you to, to go with your, your favorite barbershop song. And uh, I know you've coached hundreds of athletes, so I, I won't ever ask you to you know, pick a favorite, but you know, are, are there some that, that stick out to you maybe for different reasons. I know one of the ones um, I've heard you always talk about is Walt Crawford because of his, his story, but are, are there other gentlemen like that or even ladies? I know you coached a, a little bit of the women's team that, you know, kind of maybe they weren't your top runner, but, but something else kind of made them very memorable to you as an athlete. I, I never really co coached the women. I, I knew about them. Uh, Joan Schmidt was a faculty member okay. in 1972 and she was a runner herself. And so uh, she helped get the cross-country thing off the ground. John Kraft later became the women's coach. Uh, but I have so many stories about guys, it'd be hard to tell. Walt Crawford is one. Mike Larson uh, came from Decatur. He was the only guy from Decatur, I can't think of the name of the school, to ever run in the state meet. He placed in the state meet. He's now a pastor at Troy, Missouri, in a, in a place there, just doing wonderful things for people. Joe Sheeran. It's an interesting story. I had written a letter. We didn't have scholarships. We didn't went big time recruiting. I wrote him a letter. He was a, a fair athlete in high school, but he didn't win the state or anything like that. One summer afternoon, the door uh, to the laboratory opened up and it was a, a woman with a young uh, son. 
And she said, my name is Mrs. Sharon. You wrote my son a letter and he wants to come to Eastern. And I shook hands with him and it wasn't a hearty lumberjack type. Handshake. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, but, uh, but he won't be much of a runner. Well, it turned out Joe has been NCAA champion, uh, uh, all American at least 12 times that I can count wow. indoor, cross country, outdoor division one, division two, and probably the most courageous gutsy guy uh, in the nationals in 1976. It was 20 degrees out in Pullman, Washington. It pictures as 200 runners, the best runners in, in all the NCAA on the starting line. And the, the president of the university comes out with a shotgun and he says, runners on your mark, get set. Well, you don't say get set in a distance run. You just shoot the gun. Well, when he said get set, half of the runners took off and the <laughs> other half stayed there. Then he shoots the gun and the runners run almost a half a mile uphill in this 20 degree weather. And uh, uh, Joe decided he better run because what if they didn't call the race back? So he did. They called the race back. The announcer said, we're going to give you 15 minutes to recover and uh, we'll restart. So they go to the line and the president did the same thing again. It happened twice. Oh, wow. I'm telling this because if you know what running a half mile to 20 degrees uphill does against the best in the, in the country, Joe stayed right with him. He went by the half mile in two minutes and eight seconds. That may not mean much to you. That's a 416 mile after he'd done two of them. They went back and started the third time. I'll just finish the story to tell you that Joe was the fourth American to finish the race. He finished uh, 18th, I think, because so many were foreigners. But I can re remember the slobber hanging out of his mouth <laughs> at five miles. And I thought, this is the gutsiest guy I have ever seen. And he's still running. He's 61 years old. If anybody looks him up in the senior running uh, annals, He's still winning senior championships around the country. So Joe Sheeran would have to be one of the toughest competitors I've ever seen. And I'm guessing unlike track where you get a false start and you're disqualified, they weren't going to disqualify half the field twice in the uh, cross-country meet there. They, I think they disqualified <laughs> the president is what they did. <laughs> no, that, that's good. One of the other things, one of your other big passions, Coach, and I, and I know you're, you're heavily involved with this, and maybe you were, you were instrumental in starting the, the chapter here, is, is FCA. I know that's a, a passion for you. And for those that aren't familiar, that's the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's, it's, it's kind of a, a group that, you know, with, with some faith and religious undertones, but also really about camaraderie and sportsmanship and, and, and service. I, I know you've been big in those. Uh, we weren't able to have one this year, but in the past, a lot of times you've spearheaded an FCS day here for us for basketball. How did you kind of get involved with that? And, and how did that kind of maybe become your passion? Well, my first involvement was 1963, and I went to an FCA conference in Colorado. I not, didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, but some of the great heroes, uh, Bob Pettit, people laugh, they don't really know who that guy is, but, you know, he's a national NBA greatest shooter, blah, 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 blah. And guys like that and coaches, uh, the national championship coaches, these guys were sharing the importance of having Christ in your life. And for the first time in my life, I, I didn't see a guy with a robe on and a, and a suit and tie who had everything a, a slick presentation. I'm not putting that down at all. But I'm saying these were just regular guys that would look you in the eye and you believed them. They were sincere. And that started my interest in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. When I came back to Eastern, we got a chapter started in the late 60s, and it's still going. Different guys lead it, uh, and they still meet. Just because we couldn't have our hoops night this past year, uh, we're, they're still going, going strong. 
but uh, yeah, in the fellowship, uh, these aren't these these guys are not saints. And by the way, we have a girls group too, and they meet together periodically. But it's people striving to get it right. And uh, Christ taught us how to live with each other, how to love each other in spite of our warts. And uh, so the organization has meant a great deal to me and to a lot of people over the country. It's a national organization. Now for you, I'm kind of getting close to wrapping up here, but once again, I thank you for taking some time to, to speak with us today. Coach is one of our early guests in these, these podcasts, but you know, the COVID has kind of hit everybody. We talked about how it took away the, the FCS day that we had. How have you and your wife kind of handled that? I know you've got, you guys have grandchildren here in the, the Charleston area. Have you been able to, to see them or have you guys found other creative ways to kind of stay in touch with your family? It's kind of strange. Uh, I'm 85 and my wife will be 85 in a few months. Uh, and so uh, we're trying to be smart. Everybody says you guys are high risk and I know they're right. So we don't do a whole lot of uh, running around. However, we do get to see the children. A uh, very strange happening. I would like to share with you if there's time. Rob Ulm. Do you know Rob Ulm? Yep, I do. I do. Principal at Jefferson School. Well, he is an ultra marathoner. And I got to know him several years ago. Ultra means they run distances longer than 26.2 miles. Ultra meaning anything above that. Well, ultra for most people nowadays means 50 to 100 miles. He's run over 25 of those 100-mile races and uh, all sorts of other long-distance races. And so we were talking in early March, and he's saying, you know, so many of the races are being canceled because of the virus. There's a group in Tennessee that's having what they call a virtual run across Tennessee. And he started telling me about it. And Marge and I kind of got, we weren't going to run it, but you paid 60 bucks and uh, you get a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, and if you finish it within four months from May 1st to August 31st, you get a, a medallion. In fact, uh, I don't know. I guess you can see me. I can't. Uh, can you see this? Yes, I can. Yep. Says, uh, Rob, virtual. Rob, got his, Rob did his, he, he did 25 miles a day for 25 days. Wow. He got this medallion. Uh, it's a belt buckle. He <laughs> said, I'm going to give it to you and Marge because you guys are, are my heroes or something like that. The truth of the matter is the two of us have about 200 miles now under our belt. We're never going to get there by August 31st. So we won't earn the belt buckle. We'll probably give it back to him. But every day we record on the computer 20,000 people doing this. Wow. And so we record our mileage every day. We can see what other people are doing. And it's been, been kind of a fun thing for us because at our age, you know, we're not, don't think of ourselves as old, but each day you can bet we're planning to walk. And uh, until I had just a, a little accident <laughs> recently, broke a couple ribs. Not oh, wow. Hope anything. you're okay. <laughs> yeah, I am. But uh, we had 65 days in a row of walking three miles together, and then we would record it. So that uh, virtual reality thing is, is an interesting thing. And that's kind of keeping us going from a physical standpoint. We're good. Well, I appreciate your time, Coach. I, I thank you for joining us here today. It was great to, to catch up and hear some of the stories. And I'm sure we could we could talk for hours more about all the all the different stories and, and athletes that, that you've coached and students that you've taught as well as a, as a longtime professor here at EIU. So once again, thank you for taking time and being our guest here on the EIU Panthers podcast. Okay. Hey, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It brings back a lot of memories just to talk about these things. So, I appreciate it. Thank you for your time. Once again, our guest today on the EIU Panthers podcast, longtime former coach for the EIU cross-country and track teams, Dr. Tom Woodall. Thank you, Coach.
Okay, thank you.